Good morning, everyone. Welcome to CSIS. Thank you. I'm Kathleen Hicks. I direct the International Security Program here. Dr. Hamry, who's our CEO, wanted to be here this morning to welcome the Comnot, but he's been um, under the weather. So I get, the, I get to both moderate the conversation and also do that. Before I begin, I just want to remind everyone that uh, this is the fourth of our Maritime Security Dialogue series of 2019. Um, our Maritime Security Dialogue is co-hosted between CSIS and our partners at the U.S. Naval Institute. And we have Admiral Pete Daly here in the front row representing USNI along with his team. And our goal is to highlight current issues and future challenges facing the Navy, Marine Corps, and Coast Guard. Uh, I especially want to thank our sponsor, Huntington Ingalls Industries, for its support of the Maritime Security Dialogue that's made this uh, series possible from its be excuse me, beginning. Today, of course, we're talking with uh, Admiral Carl Schultz, a commandant of the, Mar of the Marine Corps, of the Coast Guard, sorry. It's, it's like only one today, cup of right? coffee, exactly. <laughs> it's, it's still one cup short of where I should be. Um, and we, I want to get right into it. We uh, were uh, lucky enough to have you join us in August of 2018. Pete, Pete Daly was the moderator for that session. And here we are, you know, a year plus beyond that, over uh, a few months beyond that from when you began, which was roughly May 2018. I'd love to just ask you to reflect a bit on where you feel the Coast Guard is really making progress on the key issues you're facing and where you feel like you're, you still have significant hurdles you want to tackle. Sure, well, well good morning, Kath. Yeah, good morning. Thank you and uh, Vice Admiral Pete Daly. Thanks for the opportunity to be back here at CSIS. Um, I came about two months into the job last year. I took over on one June and here we are a year and a half almost later. And I would say it's, it's been a fascinating, you know, 16 months or so here, you know, we came in Rolling into the job, I think I saw the biggest opportunity challenge ahead of us to be the unprecedented demand for Coast Guard services. And we'd been an organization that budgetarily been on a flat trajectory mm -hmm. for about eight to ten years. So number one priority, and we really doubled down, we put out a four-year strategy, just really focused on readiness. So we got that strategy out in the fall. Um, a couple of months after we were here in October, we put out what I call the Maritime Commerce Strategic Outlook that was really looking at the state of the uh, marine transportation system where 90% of America's goods moving transport and we focused on what's the Coast Guard's role in there you know it's about enabling almost 31 million jobs 5.4 trillion dollars of economic activity the average citizen doesn't tie the Coast Guard to that right. so we looked at um, you know what's our role it's in enhancing aids and navigation it's modernizing information systems it's how do we build a Coast Guard workforce that can keep pace with technological advancements on the waterfront shipping is going to double here between now and 2025 we looked at the Arctic. We put out an Arctic, a new update to our Arctic strategic uh, outlook here this past spring. We awarded the polar security cutter. When we talked about it, you know, back in the uh, summer of 2018, it was a bit of still a notion, and we're sort of optimistically hoping for that polar security cutter. We crafted, uh, I think we rolled out the term polar security cutter here at this event, and uh, we're off to the races. You know, we awarded the contract this April, and uh, the conversation now is not about the first polar security cutter, but how fast can we build additional cutters? We're talking about medium icebreakers. I coined, or we kind of focused in on a 631 strategy, a minimum of six icebreakers, three that needed to be heavies, and the one was getting going on that first one. We continue to build national security cutters. We're focused an awful lot on people. You know, one of the things that I see as the biggest challenge facing you know, my successors, the 27th, 28th, 29th Commandant, is really talent management. It's mm -hmm. a competitive workplace, and less than 30% of American youth, 17 to 24, are eligible to serve. 
Um, we've got 15% women, you know, society at large here in America is about 50% women in the workplace, so we've got to do better there. We've got to bring more underrepresented minorities. And so we're working hard on a lot of fronts. It's been a busy year. Throw the shutdown in the middle of that, 35 days, uh, where DHS employees went without pay. That was, that was challenging. It was sporty. It, it rocked us a little bit as an armed service. I think it's the first time an armed service had been left out like that. So uh, it's been a pretty fascinating, fast-paced And just year. to put a finer point on that, for those who don't recall, the, uh, the Department of Defense did receive appropriations, but because you are under Department of Homeland Security, Coast Guard Correct. did and not. And it was interesting because yeah. the Department of Defense got a budget on time. You know, starting the fiscal year on 1 October was fantastic. Now the government writ large, as you know, you know, through February, through November 21st is under continuing resolution. That creates some, you know, some challenges for federal agencies. You know, Coast Guard not unique to others, but uh, we'll see where we go here in the coming weeks. Great. Okay, I want to go back over many of the okay. things yeah. you just mentioned. You, you were, you were able, yes, you were able to tease. I think all the big issues. Let's start on the people side. The, okay. the recruit and retain, which has been a challenge uh, for some of the other armed services. Um, how is Coast Guard doing? You, you, you mentioned in particular the issue of um, you know, trying to attract more women, and so I'd love for you to reflect a little more on that, but then more broadly. Sure. Uh, what are the challenges you're facing, and how is the Coast Guard going about Well, let me, let me start on the more broadly. So back in 1 January 2018, if you, if you pay attention to the armed forces writ large here, we wanted this new system, blended retirement. So we were on a 20-year you know, you got nothing till 20, then you got 50%. As of 1 January 2018, this blended retirement, you get 2% a year, you can draw after 12 years. So at the 12 year point, a young Coastie, a young Marine looks around and says, hey, do I really want to continue to, to serve here? And you know, we offer about a two month kicker here to keep them for four more years. Um, used to be yesteryear, you know, at about eight, nine years, if you had a Coast Guardsman at that point, you probably had them till 20 years because they wanted to get a little bit of return on their investment. I think it's a good thing for the nation. We've been a nation at war here for years, so I don't think men and women that have served when one in six come back with some type of form of post-traumatic stress disorder that you should have to go 20 years. That said, for an organization like the Coast Guard, which is, you know, apprentice, journeyman, subject matter expert, a lot of marketable skills, it's something we really got to pay attention to. So a young Coast Guard female marine science technician down in Houston who's very savvy as we become an exporter of LNG in the coming years, working on the waterfront with Shell. It's got a family and Shell comes along and says, what's Schultz paying you? And I, hmm. they can do the pay charts. It's probably in the low 70s. And they offer that smart Coast Guard woman, you know, 150K to stay in place. She's got a spouse who's working, kids that are happy. That's pretty challenging for us. Our retention models under the old was about 40% of our enlisted people went to 20 years, 60% of our officers. I think that's going to be very challenging for the Coast Guard. So we've got to have a great brand. We've got to focus on the Coastie, their families, health care. Um, you know, we, we cap out at about 50% tuition assistance. That's a choice, but in a flat budget environment, it's one of those tough choices we make, which is a competitive disadvantage. So we're looking at all those things, Gap. Uh, another thing you mentioned is essentially readiness operations. Right. Yeah. But, uh, what's your sense of your readiness recovery path? Where are you on that path? Sure. Is that the right way to describe it for the Coast Guard? How, how do you yeah, think about that Let me, let me just challenge? go back. One thing I didn't mention because I started sort of the big picture was on the women's retention. We rolled oh, out yeah. a women's retention study with, that hit the streets in March. We had been, you know, had been underway for about a good part of a year. We're, we were losing women here at a disproportional level on what we call our, our body, our mm -hmm. weight standards. Um, you know, you go in, you get in a scale, your height, weight, if you're fine, you're good for another six months. If you go in and, and you didn't get through that initial just jump on the scale thing, then we do body fat measure, two-third tape thing. We found we we're discharging women, at, at, you know, threefold mm. 
rate over their male counterparts. We just rolled out on 1 October some new body composition program. Gives you three ways to comply. It's the, uh, the, the initial way you walk in. It's a modified tape and it's a new abdominal circumference, and there's actually a fitness test. So we're trying to be more competitive mm -hmm. for our women colleagues. We put some policies in place where um, for folks that are lieutenants and below, so 03 and below, E6 and below, if you got a co-located spouse, an, an active member spouse, we'll guarantee you when you show up in the area, say you and I were a couple, mm -hmm. you got four yours, I got two, we go to Alameda, California, what kind of decisions you make in terms of housing, childcare? We're gonna say, all right, let's figure out what Hicks and Schultz are gonna get here. They both get three-year assignments. If you stepped out to have a child, it used to be, because we have a lot of small units, you know, you'd be away for a long time. So your 25 shipmates mm. pick up a slack for the good part of your departure. Now we actually put a reservist behind there. So you can go start your family or have a second or third child, figure out what's right there, come back to the workplace. We had a capable reservist came in. He or she got some active duty time. The unit didn't miss a beat. So some of those things were really... We're pretty proud of that. I think yeah. it's, it's resonated well with our, with our workforce and the, the female colleagues here a little bit, and we continue to march down the road there. So back to your right. readiness question. Yeah. Sorry about that. No, I thought that was okay. kind of important yeah. for this audience. On the readiness front, it's been a bit of a dialogue. It's, you know, when the president came in back um, in 2016, there was National Security Presidential Memor Memorandum number one that really was how are we going to make the armed forces more healthy? They were having the same readiness conversations. And, I don't think this was an overt snub of the Coast Guard, but that was focused on DOD. And, mm -hmm. you know, there was a 12% uptick on operating support. That's, you know, that's how you pay for the stuff you deliver to the, to the taxpayer every day, whether it's war fighting, whether it's Coast Guard missions. We weren't part of that conversation. So we've been on about this eight, nine year flat, almost slightly decremental trajectory. So first is, is, is education, you know, talking about, hey, we are an armed force. We absolutely have the same challenges, a lot of capital assets, training, retention, recruitment, um, those things we talked about already. We do about a billion dollars of work in support of the geographic combatant commanders, the Pentagon, on an annual basis. We get the same $340 million we got back in 2001, no cost of living adjustment, and that demand signal just goes up every year. So we're trying to have the appropriate conversations inside the administrations, that's DHS, that's at OMB, across the river with the Pentagon, with the, uh, the military leadership. And, uh, you know, not trying to say we need a fix on that overnight, but it's, it's what they call a non-emergency 050 defense fund. You know, you know the background on that, not to get into to technical jargon. But if we could close that gap, I think that would really advance the writing discussion. On Capitol Hill, I think, I think our messaging has been effective. We're seeing, you know, 20 budgets still in the congressional stage, so we haven't seen that yet. But I think some of the, the markups show some sensitivity or awareness of what we're asking for and really about those dollars to help us compete for talent, those dollars that help us deliver frontline services. I think we're making some headway, but I think it's going to be the four-year focus of my tenure as commandant. It's going to be absolutely on this readiness crusade here. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to get eventually to all around the yeah. world, yeah. Uh, but I'll, so this may be an entry point into it, but modernization. Can you just talk a little bit about the key modernization priorities for the Coast Guard, part of which I know you've, you've already achieved uh, sure. at the beginning of? So on an organizational standpoint, we took a big step about nine and a half years ago to modernize under a different construct. It's sort of a mission support, frontline operational construct. And we continue to make some changes on key personnel. And, you know, you don't always get things 100% right when you take a big change like that. So we're trying to perfect that. You know, how much you centralize, where do you go back, maybe decentralize a little bit. In terms of platform-centric modernization, we continue to build national security cutters. Um, con the, the program of record was eight ships. Congress saw fit to award three additional ships. Those are great ships. They are 
just delivering success in you know, unprecedented fashion down there. Uh, I was looking, we had a national security cutter downrange, and James just rolled up a drug seizure over the weekend. We've got the Coast Guard cutter Stratton over in the Indo-Pacific Theater, which followed the national security cutter Bertoff, just doing great things to support Admiral Davidson and Indo-PACOM, whether that's sanctions enforcement for the DPRK, whether that's partnering with the Philippines, the Sri Lankans, the Vietnamese, whether it's uh, you know putting a different face on the South Sea, South China Seas, China Seas problem set a little bit, their challenge set. Um, offshore patrol cutters, you know, we awarded a contract back in September. Um, we just got a determination from the secretary here last week and you know the shipbuilder, Eastern Shipbuilding Group, really had a pretty devastating category five hurricane that hit them mm -hmm. last year in October. And we just um, worked through a process here and the secretary signed off and this is what they call an 85804 extraordinary relief. That's gotta go uh, cure on Capitol Hill for about 60 days here a little bit, but um, there's a way forward here where I think Eastern Shipbuilding Group can remain viable. It also allows us to uh, put a recompete on the street here in the not too distant future so that um, the real reason for this, if it's, it's, sort of a, it's sort of a federal acquisitions reg pathway under extraordinary circumstances, but we think there's a national compelling urgency on, on fielding offshore patrol cars. That's 75, 70% for our entire major cutter offshore fleet that does the counter drug work, that projects presence. So um, that, that, we're in the thick of that right now. Um, we're gonna build waterways, commerce Can boats. I just ask yeah. on that piece, do, how much of a delay do you anticipate in the overall um, fielding, if you will, of well, this Well, assuming this 85804 process moves forward as proposed and signed off by the secretary, I think we cut that delay down on the first NSC to about 10 months, 10, mm -hmm. 12 months. You know, had we gone with a full recompete, you're talking three plus years. Right. So this gives us the chance to, to give the shipbuilder a chance to be successful. It also gives other vendors a chance to come back to the table. We sort of you know, spread the risk around. The risk would be get national security cutters, mitigate the risk, get cutters sooner. Mm -hmm. Then if that doesn't go quite so well because of challenges, whatever, we got another pathway to, to getting ships. Um, polar security cutters we talked about. Aviation, we've got we're fielding, uh, we put five C-130Js up in Alaska in Kodiak. They are in incredibly capable, more so than the H models they replaced. Mm -hmm. They got more power, more climb, longer reach. We're gonna put them out in uh, Barbers Point, Hawaii here in the coming year. Mm -hmm. We're looking at recapitalizing our helicopter fleet. We got a lot of, we fly helicopters more than anybody else flies, like helicopters in the world. Dolphins, are 98 of those, and we're gonna fly them 30,000 plus hours. Uh, MH-60s, the, the, you know, it's a Coast Guard version of the Jayhawk or the Navy Seahawk. We take aircraft from the Navy with about 8,500, 10,000 hours. They're done with them. And we actually mm -hmm. bring them down through the Sundower program in Elizabeth City, North Carolina. We can get another up to 20,000 total hours on those. We got a program now um, where we buy these service life extension program. We buy new hulls and we can actually get 20,000 additional hours on top of the existing hours. So we got some plans and we're looking at future vertical lift. How do we? sort of follow that, but we're not basically hostage to not having a way forward until that shows up. So that's a lot of the things I think going on. Fast response cutters, we fielded, you know, mid-30s of those. We're building out a program of 58. We're gonna start putting them over in Bahrain at the fifth fleet here in late 2021 to support our, our work over there for the, the CENTCOM combatant commander. And has the story behind that modernization plan that you lay out been, been well received on Capitol Hill? I think so, I, I absolutely think so. I think. You know, you take that national security cutter and you show its ability to be a geographic global deployer. I think that's, that, and it can be, it's supported halfway around the world. Great support from the uh, Seventh Fleet, from Indo-PACOM. You look at that same cutter down there on the drug vector. We've had that cutter up there, you know, below the Arctic Circle or on the fringes of the Arctic Circle and some of the non 
you know, most extreme times of winter, that is truly a, a capable ship. And I think that, that return on investment becomes pretty, pretty visible pretty right. quick here. So let's jump out now geographically, um, starting in, in East Asia. The, the, so much of how the China Challenge is presenting looks like a sweet spot, if you will, for the United States Coast Guard. Um, it's using you know, its own Coast Guard. It's using uh, uh, fishing vessels that are really part of a, right, a state of military militia, we'll call it. Yeah, right. maritime militia right. force. Um, how is the, co I, last time you were here, you talked about um, Admiral Davidson and Opecom sort of putting out requests for Coast Guard. You, you mentioned the degree to which you all are, are tied operationally to supporting right. those demands from DOD. How do you see the Coast Guard role, both specifically in, in the Asia Pacific realm around the China challenge, but then maybe more generally around these state-based major challengers that are using what I would call gray zone, some people call it hybrid, uh, approaches to take on the United States? Yeah, I think you know, from a resourcing standpoint, it's sort of a high demand, low density conversation. So that's mm -hmm. 11 national security cutters. You know, six are on the waterfront here. We're building the other ones here and, and excited about getting them out there doing missions. Um, I think we bring something unique there. You know, we're an organization. I think when you see the United States Coast Guard, you see that iconic, you know, orange racing stripe, blue racing stripe. It stands for model maritime governments. It stands for rule-based order. It projects that wherever you are in the globe here. You know, if you look at a lot of Coast Guards of the world, including the China Coast Guard, they kind of mimic that with mm -hmm. a, a blue stripe. And But I don't think they, they mimic our behavior. You know, we're not running down fishing boats that are in disputed areas and driving away. I think the Coast Guard brings what I'll call is that model governments. It's a model of restraint. It's a model of um, really, really the, in the rules base. Now you say, what do you add to the equation over? I think the sanction work with DPRK is right up our alley. I think, mm -hmm. you know, we're helping Vietnam build their Coast Guard. This is moving away from the National Security Guard. This is on yeah. a people-to-people -people basis. Vietnam is going to grow their Coast Guard almost fivefold. Um, Indonesia's the Bakamla building out their maritime service. You look at the Sri Lankans, you look at excess defense articles. We've sent ships to the Philippines, former, former 378 high endurance cutters to Vietnam, to Sri Lanka. I think it's, a, it's part of a, a building block approach below the national security level cutter, not level, but security cutter. You know, we're doing things in the Indo-Pacific region. Look at the Federated States of Micronesia, the Kofa states. We've sent a 225-foot buoy tender and a 154-foot fast response cutter did Apainga recent weeks. That is a human-to-human -human interaction. You know, most of those island nations derive about more than 50% of their gross domestic product from fisheries. They're concerned about sovereign enforcement of their fisheries waters. We partnered with the Australians, with the New Zealanders. They both had ships down there while we were there. That looks different than just checkbook diplomacy that China comes in to do. And, you know, China looks across that entire swath of uh, the Western Pacific and I think has different designs than we do. So I think we bring that human-to-human -human alternative. Ienga means family. It's Operation Family. I think that's, I think you see a lot more of that coming. When I talked to last year, we were sort of thinking about what do we do beyond just big ships to Indo-Pacific. I think it's, that's the other part mm -hmm. of the conversation. We're going to put three new fast response cutters in Guam in coming years. This, uh, this Apainga demonstrated the ability to send a 154 patrol boat 2,500 miles and when you support it with a bigger ship, that's a really potent package. I think just just really conveys interest, 
concern, human-to-human -human partnerships, and I'm very excited about that. How do you prioritize? Uh, what's the process you're using? Because you have limited, as you right. said, you have very limited resources. Uh, Coast Guard capabilities are in high demand. Coast Guard does sort of have a uh, this have the law enforcement right. ab ability to not look like a you know big uh, U.S. Defense Department asset. Um, what are you doing to try to make sure you're hitting the highest priority yeah. areas? So the Navy can, their DOD basically through the Global Force Management process, asks for Coast Guard forces, requests for forces. We we process those. We have our internal. Coast Guard, you know, way of meeting out finite capacity. I think what we've done a little bit recently, a little different in the past year or so, is we've probably, in the past, we've pushed resources out to the areas and, and sort of had a, a model that's sort of iteratively kind of built on itself each year. I think we're taking a little more of an enterprise view mm -hmm. because of the choices, because of the finite capacity. Where is the biggest return on investment for the nation? Where are those returns on the Coast Guard? I think the counter-drug mission, you know, that is a campaign that'll go on forever. You know, you say, how many ships do you put against that at the expense of another one in the Pacific? Well, I'll tell you, there's 70,000 plus deaths on American streets related to drug-related violence and, and corruption. I look at what goes on at the southwest border, and that really is fueled by the uh, cocaine that comes out of the Indian Ridge that, that makes landfall in Costa Rica and Panama and El Salvador, Honduras. Um, so I think that's important. Then there's also the, you know, what can a couple additional Coast Guard ships do in Indo-Pacific? presence in the Arctic. We still need domestic fisheries off the Pacific Northwest. Um, there is a lot of demand. So we're, we're taking a little bit more of an enterprise, internal, I guess maybe global view. I won't call mm -hmm. it global force management. We have our own process, SOPP process. That's probably taken a little more senior leader headquarters dialogue to, to get to the right place on that. Um. I want to end up at the Arctic with this question, but beginning with uh, the Navy's stand-up or re-establishment re of its second fleet, right. has that changed in any way the way in which the Coast Guard and Navy are coordinating and integrating in the Atlantic? Yeah, I think you know we've been very deeply invested in a lot of a lot of venues, a lot of forums. You know, North Pacific Coast Guard Forum, which is which is Japan, it's China, it's Russia, it's um, you know different stakeholders, Canada, the Coast Guard. North Atlantic Coast Guard Forum was a little bit atrophied over the years. I think with the return of the Second Fleet, you know, sort of a, a rising, reemerging Russia, you think about um, you know, why do we bring a Second Fleet back? It, you know, you look at what's going on here, and you say there's absolutely a, a Coast Guard Forum piece of that. I just got back from Greenland last week a little bit, and you look at the, the Kingdom of Denmark's relationship from a security standpoint with Greenland. You know, Greenland's economy, when you roll up the 600 million that comes from Denmark, you know, fisheries is about 27% of their economy. When you take out that Greenland, you know, I guess I'll call it a block grant chunk of money, it's almost 95%. Mm. But, you know, Russia's operating off of Greenland's waters. That has, that has the kingdom concern, that has Greenland concern. So I think we're absolutely looking to the Atlantic. I think we look, you sort of mentioned ending up in the Arctic, but we've been very Alaska Arctic focused. Yeah. I would tell you Canada is very Atlantic Arctic focused. Mm. Um, Denmark, Norway, the other members of the, uh, you know, the Arctic Council, the Coast Guard forums are Atlantic-based Arctic. And I think we're broadening our aperture really across from the, from the high latitudes right. into the Atlantic Ocean a little bit about re-energizing this Coast Guard Atlantic Forum, re-energizing our partnerships, thickening those lines. 
So you have a new Arctic strategy out. Right. Can you uh, describe for folks the three, the, the major thrust of it, the three lines of effort that the Coast Guard is pursuing, how it frames up its role in the Arctic? Yeah, well, we're really, um, the Arctic, we, we, we've talked about the Arctic really as an emerging area. I'd say the Arctic is sort of an emerged area. We know what the Arctic is now a little bit, and we're up there trying to figure out how do we operate, how do we project sovereign presence, why are we up there? You know, I think if you go back to that Alaska Arctic, you know, it's a competitive space. China's been up there five, six of the last nine years. Um, they're going to really potentially outpace us on, on you know, ice-breaking capable ships here by 2025 if we don't keep our foot on the gas there a little bit. And they're obviously not an Arctic nation. They are what they call a self-declared, you know, near-Arctic state. I think Secretary Pompeo at the uh, Arctic Ministerial really took the wind out of that a bit and said, you're either an Arctic nation or you're not. There's no such thing as a self-declared state. But, um, you know, we're up there. That, that line of effort is continuing to learn to operate. As I've sort of studied the space, the conversation my first six, eight months was really getting that first breaker. We've been talking about that for a decade. Now you say, what are those other enablers? You have very limited maritime domain awareness. You have very little communications. The uh, 420-foot um, medium breaker Healy's above the Arctic Circle right now doing research work for different science organizations. She's off the grid. I mean, she has some uplink basic communications back, but the work of that ship really suffers. There's no connectivity. You know, we got to figure out how do we partner with other government agencies? How do we partner with NORTHCOM, who has mm -hmm. geographic responsibilities? How do we bring industry? And we're having some conversations with different industry stakeholders about, you know, what can we do in terms of additional low Earth satellites over the Arctic to, mm -hmm. to get after those problems? Right. And, uh, and it's really about continuing to build partnerships. You know, you still have the indigenous people that have their lifestyles up there. So we got to be very cognizant of, of partnering there. And then you kind of pivot to the other side of the world a little bit. I mean, right now, a lot of the disputed water space is the conversation about the East and South China Sea. But, you know, look at the, what Russia's doing up there. I mean, Russia's tripling down in terms of their icebreaker investment. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they're looking at ships coming out of Asia that can take that northern sea route, cut 14, 16 days off of transit through the Suez Canal, that could be pretty lucrative. And I think the potential future disputed maritime regions might be in that northern sea route. And who's got the ships to, to push into that and offer a competing voice? I, I think you're going to see if we build out this fleet, that might be the United States with a heavy role there, even though it's sort of in our European Arctic partners' backyard. Mm -hmm. I think when you look at the type of capabilities they're building out there, it's, it's a little more ice reinforced. In access to the Arctic certain times of year, we may be looking at a little more of the real capability to, to push into that challenge. It seems to me, given the austerity of the Arctic environment, the, the logistics tail, I mean, it's, it's in some ways also the perfect um, place to highlight areas where tech can really advance us. You mentioned the low Earth right. orbit satellites. I would imagine things like 3D printing, um, uh, unmanned systems. How much is the Coast Guard thinking through those aspects of how it modernizes for the future? Yeah, I think we're always, you know, we. I think we've defined ourselves here. Sometimes we made a couple of missteps in the early years of what was, you know, our major capitalization, which was under the ban originally, Deepwater. We got a little bit ahead of ourselves. We probably, by the scope of our budget, a 12 billion organization, probably rightfully belong as a COTS, you know, commercial off the self technology kind of organization. That's just probably the sweet spot. We've got a small, modest R&D budget. Do tremendous things up in New London, Connecticut, but it's but it's modest. So I think we'll we'll be COTS based, but we're looking at those type of things. You take that counter-drug mission where you're trying to surveil the eastern Pacific Ocean, which really you can take the entire United States, turn it on about a 45-degree axis and drop it there. It's, it's equivalent of patrolling North America with five or six you know, police cars out of Columbus. You've got to bring some technologies in. There's 
unmanned systems. We've, we fielded uh, small unmanned systems to scan eagle on the back of our national security yep. cutters. We haven't fielded them all out yet, but hopefully by the end of next year, every national security cutter will have a scan eagle. That's a, a mission enabler. For what, SAR in particular, or MDA in general? Well, that's for MDA in general, for counter drug. Um, we, we used it up in the Arctic. Um, we're doing counter UAS. We just came from the UA general, UN General Assembly in New York a couple weeks ago. And under authorities that came in with the FAA Authorization Act, we actually did some prototyping of counter UAS technologies on the waterfront for UNGA and uh, had a few, you know, took a couple UASs um, and encountered them here successfully. I think there's a leadership role for the Coast Guard, potentially inside the department, maybe inside of government for some of those things. So we absolutely have got to look at embracing technology. We also have to pace it a little bit with the scope of our budgets and, mm -hmm. our, and, our, and our limitations there. So we look at what others are doing. We say, how do we bring something that General Atomics may have there that can go and fly persistently for 40 hours. How do we bring that into the, to the military framework or the Coast Guard framework to get after the missions we're tasked with providing? Great, I want to make sure there's time for audience yeah. questions. So I'll, I'll ask one more general topic area, which is not a small one. It's, uh, it's the homeland piece. It's the, you know, you've described the Coast Guard role before in terms of border protection as the away game. Um, you know, there has been no shortage of controversy over U.S. Um, immigration and border control policy. Um, can you just talk a little bit about how you see the Coast Guard's role with regard to those issues, border security and immigration, um, and if it's changed at all in, in, the, in your tenures, uh, so the last 18 months roughly? Yeah, well, I think if you think about pull it up and not a level and say Coast Guard defending the homeland. You know, what does that involve? I think it's the 361 seaports. You know, 90% of all the economic activity in this country, goods, international shipping, imports, exports, go through the ports. So we, we have a key role in protecting the seaports, a lead role. We work with our Customs Protection Border Patrol Office of Field Operations counterparts there, state and local interests, but that's part of that layered defense. Then you look at the borders, the legal immigration, you know, you got a 60-mile plus or minus stretch from the Bahamas into South Florida. Um, we introduced biometrics a decade or so ago. We get a little better visibility who's going there. We've got folks that, you know, that are leaving from Dominican Republic go to Puerto Rico. If you're in Puerto Rico, you're in New York. Um, at the southwest border, we've been supporting the Department of Homeland Security, our CBP, and Border Patrol colleagues. You know, when you think about the inception of DHS back 16 years ago in 2003, I think it was a bit of the the Department of Defense model that goes back 70 plus years. But when you brought four military services with very common culture together, that wasn't easy. And then you had to kind of reinvigorate it in the 80s here a little bit right. in Goldwater Nichols. Think about 22 different agencies in DHS that do extremely different work. But I think, you know, I'm pretty proud of our ability to, we've, we've had on average about 150 people supporting Border Patrol. And, uh, and other CBP elements What's at the that border. Support? In what ways are you supporting? Yeah, so we had, we've had some, uh, we, we've walked back the operational units. We had boats on the Rio Grande River, good part of, uh, you know, 18 hours of a 24-hour day. We had some helicopters flying there. We had folks doing support types functions that allowed Border Patrol agents to actually be on the border with their authorities, and we could do some of that work that wasn't really agency-specific, authority-specific work to enable them to do that. We've walked that number back to probably the mid-80s right now a little bit. So we will continue to do that to the extent that the Secretary of the Department tells me there's a demand signal there. But uh, I think it's really part of why you created the Department of Homeland Security is to synchronize 
you know, the various capabilities of the department and, and push the capacity. And, and there is a human crisis. I was down the border in my last job. I was double-hatted as the Joint Task Force um, East Director, and then I was also the Coast Guard Atlantic Area Commander. Yeah, I spent a lot of time at the border there. I've been down to the border here. It, it's, it's challenging down there. I think it's a department priority, and the Coast Guard being part of that is appropriate. Okay, I do want to leave time for the audience, so sure. I'm going to, uh, call, if I call on you, please uh, stand, use the microphone, state your name, one question. So we'll start right here. Uh, yes, I'm Russell King, retired federal employee, former surface line officer in the aircraft carrier Midway. Um, a couple years ago, I read an article in Proceedings, an Arctic issue, and it had uh, what they call geostrategic icebergs, and it was a fictional example of a search and rescue uh, geostrategic iceberg. And uh, there was a cruise ship going from west to east through the Canadian Northwest Passage during the summertime, and everything was fine for a while, but then when they got off a of Svalbard, there was a storm, and, um, uh, and the Icelandic Coast Guard responded, but they didn't have enough resources to, um, to, 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 to save all the people. And um, I, I was wondering, what uh, does the United States do with the Coast Guards of other nations to cooperate on um, search and rescue? And also, uh, I'd like to know about the Northern Sea Route. Are we, uh, are we considering the Northern Sea Route at any time in the future? Is it feasible for us? And how would we cooperate with the Russians on that? So let me, a lot, a lot of questions in that question. I think I would say in terms of international cooperation on search and rescue, we absolutely cooperate across the globe. And I think we, from some of the technologies that we embrace and we do some things with uh, for military sales of capabilities, um, search and rescue regions abut each other. So, you know, we work um, on the seams all the time with partners. You know, I think when you're talking north, you're probably talking Northwest Passage, not Northern Sea Route. Northern Sea Route takes you across Russia and yeah, Europe, I think. Yeah, okay, well, I would say, Search and rescue in the Northern Sea Route, not, not really in our geographic reach here. I would say, you know, we, we're looking, talking to the Canadians about the Northwest Passage. You know, the Secretary of the Navy has approached me about, you know, possibility of a joint Coast Guard, uh, U.S. Navy, Canadian sort of Northwest Passage transit at some point in the future. That's intriguing. I was up there with Secretary Spencer um, for an Arctic capabilities exercise just recent weeks here up off Alaska, and it was... It was Navy, Coast Guard, Marines, uh, amphibious operations demonstrating our, our Arctic capabilities. Um, you know, the Northwest Pass or the Northern Sea Route, there, there's seasons where, you know, arguably you could say there's less ice and more open water today than there wasn't. But when you have free-floating ice and you have wind conditions, it can get pretty sporty pretty quick. There's a lot of, you know, we, we track the Crystal Serenity through, I think, 2017 was her last transit there. She had done two years in a row, but then they looked at the ice conditions and they're not there. So you need icebreaker support through those areas. So there's a lot of things still to figure out. Um, what I will tell you is at the end of the day, there are increasing mission demands. So you got, you know, yachters that have, you know, resources that take their, their ice-equipped boats up to the Arctic. There's more activity. Walk the clock back, 2014-15, Shell was looking at heavy investments in the Arctic for, for deriving uh, energy off the seafloor, shallow, fairly shallow depths. Now the whole oil shale business is different and, and they walked away from $5 billion there. But I think you'll see you know, things reemerge. You'll see increased Coast Guard requirements in the Arctic from a search and rescue standpoint. So we're always, we're always looking at that. We've been forward operating from about one June to October out of Kotzebue with two MH-60 Jayhawk helicopters, some humans. It gets us closer to the fight. 
to, to be responsive in the, uh, in the, in the, you know, the summer season up there. Um, so there's a lot in that question, but it, we're absolutely leaning forward trying to look at capabilities of the Arctic. When I was in, uh, you know, Greenland last year, we worked with the Danish capability on some of their satellite capabilities for tracking icebergs with our International Ice Patrol, which is C-130 based, and how do we leverage, they're doing some really novel things. We work with the uh, National Ice Center here. We're trying to work with partners and derive the best capabilities and the best knowledge from, from all our international partners. Great, okay, I have one right up here. Yeah, hi, Admiral Calby, Secretary of Defense Daily. Yeah, uh, uh, so on the OPC, the Offshore Patrol Cutter Program, yeah. so what's the cure notice process here? Do you need Congress to sign off on this before, uh, you know, your new acquisition strategy can go into effect, or at least before you can actually release a new acquisition strategy? And is Eastern Shipbuilding on board with this uh, abrupt change in the program? I'm assuming you guys have been negotiating things, but uh, it was a bit of a surprise on Friday. So, Cal, I would say on the, on the part about Congress, the way the, uh, the, way the, um, the provision is written into law, it goes to the Hill to sit on the Hill for 60 days. It really was organized around a defense capability, so it went to the Armed Services Committee, the Hask and Sask, obviously not being in the Department of Defense. We will send that to the Armed Services Committees because that's what the law says. We'll also send it to our Oversight Committee, so that would be Commerce, Science, Transportation, and Homeland Security, Government Affairs on the Senate side, and it would go to uh, T&I, Transportation Infrastructure, and then Homeland Security on the House side. So we'll send, we've sent it up there to, to you know, our overseers as well as what the law says with the armed services because it was sort of written for DOD before the inception of the Department of Homeland Security. But it, it, it's available to us. In terms of the Eastern Shipbuilding Group, the Vice Commandant, who's my Chief Acquisition Executive for the Coast Guard, flew down and met with Eastern Shipbuilding leadership last week. You know, when, when the secretary signed this out, so they've had a direct conversation. Um, you know, they had an ask in for, for relief for up to nine hulls. We, you know, informed the secretary with, you know, my recommendations as a service chief on different options, presented Cohen's, he made a decision. Um, Eastern will get a chance to go back and, you know, what we, what we offered them was a, a course forward to build up to four ships. And, uh, you know, each year is subject to appropriations, so they'll have to figure out where they stand on that. But uh, I guess there's a lot, lot of ground yet to plow ahead here, but it's an opportunity for Eastern to continue to build ships for the Coast Guard, and it gives us some flexibility um, so we're not completely wedded to just the Eastern, Eastern shipbuilding. You know, it's a, it's a great yard that's doing good work, um, but this is their first um, defense article that they built. They're only a couple percentages into building that first ship, so we've got to balance, you know, risk for the organization to continue to build the cutters we need to do the nation's bidding and you know give Eastern a way forward here I think to still be successful. They won the initial contract and there was a you know large God event. A Cat 4 hurricane recategorizes a Cat 5 sort of retrospectively. That, that's you know Eastern doesn't own that. That's an unfortunate circumstance. So I think the secretary has signed out a very viable way forward and uh, it's got my full support and now we're about executing it. But Eastern has to you know Eastern gets a chance to weigh in on that. Okay, let's take one right in the front here. Hi, good morning. Ben Warner from the hey, U.S. Naval Institute. I uh, want to ask again about um, a little more about the offshore patrol cutter. Just first, how is that program delayed because of what's going on with Eastern Shipbuilding and you're trying to cut down the delay? And kind of a bigger sense, how much is the CR going to affect that and other, other programs you have going on? You know, I'm literally the polar security cutter program. You know, you've got the one you're building, but I know you want to build yeah. 
more and you're kind of under pressure to get those out there because the, the one you have is sort of past its useful, <laughs> useful lifetime. Yeah, so Ben, I think on the offshore patrol cutter, you know, the impacts of the hurricane, this extraordinary relief, I think we're potentially looking at about a you know, 10 to 12 month delay on the first ship, the first offshore patrol cutter. And then it, it kind of rolls forward, you know, about nine, 10 months to subsequent ships. But, but that is still, Eastern still the quickest pathway to field an offshore patrol cutter. You know, if you went with a sole straight recompete and, and walked away from Eastern, you're probably adding three years to the first receipt of that first article, that first ship. In terms of uh, continued resolution, you know, through November 21st, obviously Congress can do normal appropriation work between now and the 21st. You know, the longer a CR goes, the more problematic it is for any federal agency. You know, right now, um, I, I don't see any immediate contracting activities, contract awards here that are going to be in jeopardy, you know, between now and November 21st. But as you get later in the year, you know, you constantly got to revisit those type of acquisitions. So I'm not in a position today to speak you know, looking in, or I'm going to be guardedly optimistic that, you know, the Congress is going to get about the business of, of getting some appropriations across the 12 appropriation committees into our hands, so I'm, I'm optimistic on that front. You know, since you mentioned the, the Cat 5 storm implications, it's worth maybe a, an additional question on the climate side. Obviously, you know, climate effects increase needs for Coast Guard. Uh, how are you thinking through, is there a, a you know, a analytical way in which you think through that? How do you even take into account that trajectory? The Arctic obviously is one major area, but beyond that, you on the homeland side, um, the need for disaster assistance presumably is increasing yeah, we've every had, year. We've had a steady battle rhythm here. If you go back to the 2017 hurricane with you know four or five major you know, category three plus storms, that was unprecedented with a lot of activity in 18 here, 19 Hurricane Dorian. Another big storm here, a Cat 5 storm that hit the Bahamas. You know, we're an organization that's pulling forward $1.7 billion backlog of critical infrastructure. Those are old facilities, and, you know, a healthy organization recaps at the rate of, you know, 2 2.5% a year. We're, we're on tens of percentages. So we're, we're pulling a, a real stern, you know, wave behind us here of stuff that we're already delinquent on. Um, as we do rebuild facilities, we've got to think about, you mm -hmm. know, those are facilities that are probably going to serve the nation for a half century plus a little bit. So we got to be thoughtful about what's the best science, where, where do we build that. You know, we got facilities in Florida, Florida, places like Norfolk, Virginia, when you talk about seawater, sea level rise, those are places that are sort of real visible spots where you're seeing, you know, some warning signs of that. So we inform our, our civil engineering planning with that. You know. In Greenland, you know, I was talking to the, uh, the JACO, the Joint Arctic Commander. It's a Navy two-star or a um, Danish two-star um, general over there, and uh, they were talking about places where, you know, the ice extended 30 miles or so out into the ocean here, and it's receded where the iceberg is sort of contiguous with the land border. Mm -hmm. I mean, you're seeing some changes there a little yeah. bit. So we try to inform our, our infrastructure, our planning to the best science available here. Yeah, very good. Okay, we'll come back, I'll swing back through this way. We'll take one right here. Uh, thank you for taking my question. My name is uh, Sang Min Lee. I'm from the Radio Free Asia for Korean service. I have a question about the uh, Coast Guard's operation to support implementation of UN sanctions against North Korea in West First Peak. Uh, Cut a strengthen of Coast Guard has been dispatched to West First to have participated in stopping North Korea illicit ship to ship transfer. And also, Coast Guard has updated the list of North Korean vessels to watch. 
So can you explain more about the Coast Guard's operation regarding uh, supporting implementation of UN sanction against North Korea? In regard to that, do you have a plan to dispatch another cutter after cutter strengthen come back for this mission? So North I, Korea sanctions yeah. and Coast Guard, Coast Guard role. role. So the way to, to, to address your question, thank you for the question. You know, the Coast Guard I mentioned sent you know, two national security cutters. One went and came back for about a five-month deployment. One's over there for about an equal deployment. You know, when we send a ship, it, it basically changes its operational control to the uh, Indo-Pacific commander and the Seventh Fleet, and they assign the work to it. The, uh, both of those cutters have done sanctions work there. I think that's, a, you know, we're an organization. Our visit board search capabilities, we, we excel at that. You know, we do a lot of law enforcement across the globe. I think the sanction work is, is right in the wheelhouse of Coast Guard expertise. Um, so as we send those ships there, you know, the, uh, the regional Navy leadership will choose how and when they use those ships a little bit. But I think that is a, a, a righteous, appropriate mission for a national security cutter to do. So I suspect as we continue to, to you know, respond to requests from the Navy for forces, we will potentially remain in that in that mission mission set over there. Sada Fuentes, Transportation Institute. Uh, CRS recently released a report on the need for uh, the Coast Guard's need for more marine safety personnel, and we're also hearing from the U.S. flag industry as well that there is a shortage of marine safety inspectors. Given how much the Coast Guard already does and how strained you already are with such a limited budget, is there, is there talk internally of growing the Coast Guard fleet, or how are you thinking about handling those challenges? Yeah, thanks, Sarah. That's a, that's a great question. I, I kind of walk it back to the Maritime Commerce Strategic Outlook. That was our strategy we rolled in October, really the 10-year look into the, into the maritime commerce, the marine transportation domain of it. And we do need to grow our workforce. You know, the 20 budget adds about 25 marine inspectors. Our, our forces command, which really takes holistic look at our training, is looking at the entire marine inspector training system. How are we training marine inspectors? How are we giving them the skills to really work on the waterfront that's increasingly sophisticated? I go down and look at, you know, Marine Safety Unit Texas City. That's about a 55-person unit today. And potentially in the next two or three years, you may see 200-plus LNG export ships go through their area of responsibility. I don't think those same 55 people are going to be able to add that volume of additional work. So we're looking at some growth there. We're also looking at some enhancements to their technical skills. So we are taking a hard look inside, and that's when you go back to those lines of effort on that maritime commerce strategy, the third line of effort is really enhancing partnerships. It's getting our folks the skills they need. You know, we are dealing with a real challenge with aging infrastructure in terms of our technology, our platform, enterprise mission platform. We need a tech renaissance in the Coast Guard. I fielded a thousand iPads, many of them to marine safety professionals. They go out and do their inspection work, then they go back to their desk and fat, figure, fat finger their findings. You know, why can't they do that in an iPad-enabled technology in the field? So we're trying to do that so we can be more efficient. But there's a capacity conversation there and then there's a skill conversation. We're working on defining what are the real skill sets and how do we best train to them. And then in the conversation of annual budgets, we're trying to define some growth in there. That's why that readiness conversation is really about, you know, 5% steady annual growth. If I can get that trajectory and get us on that, then we can have the conversations about, you know, what does the growth in 5% look like? Today, most of our personnel growth is tied to the fielding of a new platform. If I'm getting funding for that 11th National Security Cutter, I can generally find the bodies to run that 11th National Security Cutter. It's a little harder 
when I'm trying to get money for marine safety professionals. But we're working on it. I think there's some progress being made there. So thank you. Great. This one right here. Good morning. My name is Bethany Johnson. I'm at the Polar Institute at the Wilson Center. My question revolves around the Arctic, and it goes back to talking about capabilities and the partnerships you were mentioning. Mostly with the rapid pace that everything's changing up there, is there a way of moving towards uh, approaching talks with the indigenous communities in the way of getting those capabilities put together quickly, but without overriding the native voice? I, I think, Bethany, absolutely. I think the trajectory we've tried to be on is very much working with the indigenous populations and not overrunning them with, uh, you know, with the technologies and other things. I think that's a, it's how do you operate smartly up there and leverage technologies or, or help put in place those enabling technologies that allow you to operate smart and be cognizant of the, the folks that have centuries rich tradition up there that still do traditional whaling. You know, up in Kotzebue we have programs where we deploy some of our maritime security teams up there, MSST teams, and they're handing out life jackets with kids. You got, you know, young people out on boats in extreme conditions, not even with a life jacket. Those boats break down there just like they do on Lake Michigan off Southern California, but it's pretty darn harsh and dire up there when you break down and you're at sea. So we're doing some education programs. We're very much trying to not run ahead of, you know, the indigenous populations and have those appropriate kind of dialogues where we're not seen as a you know, overwhelming presence up there. We're seen as a complementary presence to other folks that are asserting, you know, interests up in that part of the world as well. Okay, we have time for one final question, and we have one right over here. Good morning, uh, Veronica Cartier. We have been talking about, uh, quote, sea challenge and China challenge, and um, to the fact that um, China is clearly the long-term ex existential threat to the U.S. China has a plan to displace the United States as the first world order and quietly is putting resources of manpower to that plan, both in the United States and in our allies' countries. Therefore, I have two related questions, sir. One for the our allies country, as you mentioned before, uh, naval operation in Asia and Indo-Pacific, especially in ASEAN, Indonesia is the largest country in ASEAN with um, undisclosed resources. I found out that it has been hundred thousands of overseas Chinese getting into Indonesia. So therefore, in the extreme way, my first question is, is that possible? Question. Yeah, okay. Is, is that possible that militarization for our allies' country will be considered to prevent of China uh, invasion? And the second question is that well, we're only for at do home, the first one. We're only yeah, do the first I, I will be finished in one sentence. Uh, at home, that any officials that deal deal with China because China is our enemy, should provide transcript for the military so that our military intelligence and national security intelligence will be able to see if there is any threat for national security. Thank you so much. Yeah, so so with the, you know, with the Indo-Pacific, with the conversation about China, I mean, we have a national 
security strategy and national defense strategy that's really focused on competing global powers a little bit. And I think, you know, the 800-pound gorilla in the conversation is China, and it's China, you know, I think you could arguably, not arguably, factually, you could say the rhetoric and the actions don't, don't correspond. You know, initially it was peaceful activities in the South China Sea that now looks like islands where there weren't islands. There's now, you know, uh, militarized fighter jets and weapon systems on those islands. So China's, the audio and the, and the visual don't match there a little bit. Then the behaviors, as, as Kath talked about, you know, the Chinese, the, the maritime militia rolling up on Vietnamese fishermen in disputed waters, running them down, leaving them adrift. You know, that's not appropriate behavior. So I think for the Coast Guard, I, I won't speak to the entire, you know, um, whole of government efforts with China. It is a whole of government problem set. The Coast Guard piece is we bring an alternative. We model the behavior that Coast Guards across the world should model. Um, we are all about rule-based order. I think we, we, when we talk about our work with the Indonesians, our work with the uh, Malaysians, our work with the Vietnamese, you know, being a neighbor to China when you're Vietnam, it's, you got to be very pragmatic. You know, you, you, whether you partner with the U.S. or not, you wake up as China's neighbor every day. How do you walk that knife edge? Helping them build out their capability. China will work with the United States Coast Guard, but not China, but Vietnam will work with the Coast Guard, but they're very cautious of, of you know, very clear bilateral relationships. So we've got a partner on each nation's terms. We're about building their capacity to offer a, a competitive, competing perspective in the region. I think we've seen the Philippine president sort of feel the heat from his own countrymen here as they sort of, you know, there was a, a rundown of, of Philippine fishermen. Now, that's not a big deal until the, the Philippine countrymen say, it's kind of a big deal here. These are disputed waters and, and you are our elected leader and we need to stand for our rights here a little bit. So I think, I think the Coast Guard has an appropriate role there. Back to Ms. Hicks' point, though, there's a finite amount of Coast Guard capacity to put against that. I think it, it fits into the Indo-Pacific whole of Department of Defense, you know, conversation and, and challenge that and how do you bring some of our Coast Guard capabilities. And then back, again, we're under that, you know, that gray zone, less than lethal level. And then what can we do to shore up the relational piece? You know, checkbook diplomacy, just going in and get a check, that, that's, that's, that's very transactional. You know, I think these island nations, these, you know, these federated states of Micronesia, the compact of federated, you know, the COFA states, I think they value the Western ideals, the relationship with us. We put a human face to that. We give them some exchange of ship riders. We give them some exchange of subject matter expertise. That's, that's where I think the sweet spot is. Team up with the Kiwis, team up with the French, key in the quads, the Australians. Now I think you're having a conversation on, you know, the high level, below level stuff, maybe with our national security cutters and then the human-to-human -human things. I think that's where you'll see the Coast Guard trying to move the needle a little bit in the Indo-Pacific region as part of a broader United States government whole of effort here a little bit. Admiral Schultz, I want to thank you for your generosity of time today, sharing your thoughts. I hope you'll be back again Thanks, next Kat. year no, with no. the Maritime Security Dialogue. I want to thank uh, Pete Daly and USNI and, of course, Huntington Ingalls Industries um, for sponsoring this uh, series. Please join me in a round of applause for the Thanks, Thanks, Thank you very much. Thank you.